Many years ago, I visited The Daily Show with Jon Stewart in New York to learn more about making political satire. I met some of their producers, including Sarah Texler. And a few hours after we first met, Sarah asked me a question, one that I never expected. Basim, can I make a documentary about your show? Surprised and a little excited, I said, yes. Sarah came to Egypt and she filmed me. She filmed my family, she filmed the staff of my show, and she filmed my city, Cairo. She hired a local crew and then went back and forth between New York and Cairo for the next few years. Sometimes we had to ask her to stay out of view. You see, having a white American lady around might rev up the crowds outside, protesting the show. And that might even feed the conspiracy theorists who thought I was an American spy. But it was great to have this smart person around, observing something that my team and I knew was very important to Egyptians. After filming, Sarah went and made the documentary. It's called Tickling Giants. And even though I hate watching myself on screen or even hearing my voice on the podcast, I have to say she did a damn good job. The movie is about Al Burnamik, my show in Egypt. But it's also about free speech and what can happen when it's compromised. The movie focuses on the ways in which Al-Burnamig was threatened and eventually shut down. How our signal was jammed, how our voice was silenced. I'm so proud of this project and everyone who made it happen, especially my director and my friend, Sarah Taxler. So we recently organized a screening of Tickling Giants in Los Angeles. And since we had just shown a bunch of people a movie about the importance of free speech and comedy, we figured they might be interested in hearing a conversation about the topic. So we invited three guests up on stage with me, and we recorded that conversation. And that's what I'm going to play for you today. In the biz, they call this a live podcast. I had three guests who are comedians and much more. Writer and producer Jason Ross from The Daily Show and The President Show. Actor Kendrick Sampson from How to Get Away with Murder and The Flash. And actor, writer and producer Guy Branham from Talk Show, The Game Show and Chelsea Lately. Now, I know what you're thinking. Four male voices? How am I going to tell them apart? Luckily for you, Jason, Kendrick, Guy and I all have really different voices. Here are a few words that each of us said during this podcast. My producers insist that the lines were randomly selected. Here's Jason. There was one point on the president show last summer when Trump had just finished his Mideast tour, when the Saudis had given him a big sword. And Kendrick. And I definitely don't think that that is what led to the Trump presidency. And Guy. That's the most fascinating thing about Trump is that he has broken political discourse in America. See, you will have no problem telling us apart. I'm Basim Youssef. This is Remade in America, presented by CAFE. In ancient Egypt, we had the sun god. His name was Ra, the creator of the world. In modern-day America, we have Sunbasket. Ah, the creator of my lunch. Now you can explore new flavors, cuisines, and ingredients every week. 
Like me, you can also get delicious recipes, organic produce, and clean ingredients delivered right to your door, all thanks to Sunbasket. Now, you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 healthy recipe options every week. You can eat vegan, like me, or choose paleo, gluten-free, and many other options. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce. And everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal in about 30 minutes. Go to thesunbasket.com slash remade today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash remade for $35 off. sunbasket.com slash remade. Okay, back to Remade in America, presented by Cafe. Today, we are sharing an episode we recorded live with comedians Jason Ross, Kendrick Sampson, and Guy Brannan. Our conversation was about free speech and comedy. We started by talking about whether certain jokes are funny or tasteless. I'm going to start with you, Jason. You've been yeah. on The Daily Show for like more than 11 years and yeah. now doing the present show. As, was there any time when you, in the writing room, uh, in the writer's room, did you have any problem with a joke? Did you say, like, let's, well, that's going to go too far, it's going to make that happens, trouble? That happens every day just in a healthy writer's room. There's mm-hmm. always, comedians are always up against that line, and I'm sure you know, we've, we've all been there where we're like, eh, is the tastelessness just too strong? Is, the, is there some, is it too angry? Is it not fun enough? You know, your show was so joyful. Oh, it's was... just because you don't understand the language. It, <laughs> it, 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 was, it, it was very depressing. Yes. Uh, so we ran, you know, we, I, I think every writer's room is always up against that line, and you're crossing it all the time and crossing back again. So th- that happened all the time, but I don't think that we ever worried about actual censorship. Mm. There are, there are, the network has standards and practices, which they need to have, and I think most of the time they put, they put some intelligence into their... Uh, in, into their analysis, and you can do some things and some and can't do some other things based on how funny it is or whether you're making a good point with it or whether it feels uh, too gratuitous. There was one point on the president show last summer when Trump had just finished his Mideast tour when the Saudis had given him a big sword, and on that same trip, Melania was... That was a token of love, by the way. A token of love. The sweetest thing that a Saudi can give you. Um... And on that same trip, uh, Melania was batting his hand away. And so our show was timed really well. It, the trip had just ended, and we had, we had the prop sword. We had our Melania actress, who was really good. And in our act fours on the president show, the president show is hosted by Anthony Tamanik, who's an incredible performer and a great Trump impersonator. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, yeah. And, and, and he's really the, he's the driving force of that show. He, he envisioned it all and, and sold it, and I just came on to try and help him do that. Uh, but for for our the end of our show, um, we had we had him reaching back to take Melania's hand, and he's saying, "Take my hand, take my hand." And she takes the sword, and she goes like this, and the, and and we just had a freeze. We had the, okay, then it freezes, and that's the end of the show. And standards and practices said, "No way, you ju- there, you cannot hint at." at dismembering the president of the United States. I like to think that they would have said that no matter who the president was, that that was not a Trump-era response. That was just a network saying you can't show the president getting his hand chopped off on TV. You just so, can't. So, uh, so but speak, let, but go, let me, there, it had a happy ending. Uh, calls were made. Pressure was applied. And uh, we ended up getting that shot into the show. Dismembering the president reminded me and my guests of comedian Kathy Griffin's recent scandal. 
when she posed for a photo holding a model of the president's decapitated head. Speaking of Kathy Griffin, do you think, because that's my next question, how far could a joke go? Would that, uh, would you think that was tasteless? Um, yes, but I, I don't necessarily, I don't think it was tasteless, honestly. I think that it was an evocation of like Renaissance paintings of Judith beheading Holferness. Um, like I, I but, it was. Yeah, I mean, here's something you may not know about me was, years and years ago when I was in college, I wrote for the campus paper and I made a joke about one of the off-limits members of the president's family. I made a joke about Chelsea Clinton and a couple of days later, some uh, Secret Service agents came to my apartment and searched it and kind of like shook me down a little bit. And the thing is, is in the United States when you're working for television, it may be annoying when you run up against these things, but when you are a private citizen with no sort of like institutional power, there's a lot more danger. And we, since that happened to me, I've become more aware of the way that like every three or four years, somebody gets sent to, like the Secret Service gets sent to some like kid's house because they made a stupid joke. Um, and I, I, I really don't think it's necessary. I mean, the, what came at Kathy Griffin initially was just private criticism. It was CNN saying that they wouldn't have her anymore, but she's gone through like months of legal troubles that we aren't really talking about because she decided to do something um, that was tacky, but like this, this country is kind of founded on the idea of beheading tyrants. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'll tell you what I thought about Kathy Griffin. I was very offended. Uh, because, like, as someone who's like standing there holding the decapitated head of another human being, that's our stereotype, mother. <laughs> that's, that, that's our thing. You she know, was it was cultural appropriation. It's a cultural really. appropriation, and it's like in the worst way possible. You can't, you, you can't invade our countries and steal our stereotypes. That is horrible. I mean, give us something to live on. That is. That's, I, I was very offended. And it's like that, at least, at least, out of, you know, representation. Uh, sake, maybe a brown person could be doing that, for, uh, pro probably from the Middle East. This is Los Angeles. Hiring white people to play people from the Middle East is what we do. Yes. It's our business. We talked about a few more recent examples of the debate between funny and tasteless. Samantha Bee using the C word about Ivanka Trump. Roseanne Barr losing her show after sending a racist tweet. And Michelle Wolf roasting the president's cronies at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Kendrick got us started. Roseanne, in the context of her entire career and saying so many problematic things and being a blatant racist and supporting oppression and white supremacy is a much better cause. Like the, 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 that was the straw that broke the camel's back, that tweet. You know, so in context, I think she shouldn't have been on the air in the first place, but um, it was justified to get her off the air as opposed to Samantha Bee, who could apologize, who did not have to, and she did. And then, you know, people are still pushing for her to lose her job. Jason? I was, I was worried when I heard she was going to apologize. And then I watched it, and I believed that it was a sincere apology. So I, I think that it was – I, I think she really felt that, so I think she probably should have done it. Um, I, I laughed at the bit when I first saw it because I think that it actually is at least a little bit satiric to, to say that about a woman who presents herself as American royalty, who, uh, who has a perfect Ralph Lauren life of wealth and beautiful children and this perfect life that is so curated in her presentation of it to say, no, 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 drag her down into the gutter with that word. I think it, I think it has some satiric value and it's not just an insult. Um, 
but obviously that's I, I think that was probably a, a minority opinion, <laughs> uh, and I accept that. I, you know, I, I, I've tried to put myself in that room a few times and tried to see what, like, game it out and, like, what, what would I have said? And, like, I don't know. Could have been funnier, I guess, you know? <laughs> like, honestly, that, that's cover. That is cover for those things. Like, you can use that word if, if everybody's laughing at the end of it. Guy? Um, I think that there's something very interesting about the use of people in the president's family as people who are off-limits for like for decades people have been using them for good press without criticism and in Trump sort of like dissolving any difference between the role and his personhood one of the things that he's done is just fill the administration with his family and that's such a Middle Eastern thing to do yeah, yeah. it's dangerous and terrifying I understand why Samantha B like S Samantha B going after Ivanka Trump is much more reasonable satire than uh, than Roseanne going after somebody who's not in power anymore. Mm. Um, with And also, Samantha Bee was talking about a group, she was using a slur for a group that she is a member of, while Roseanne was just placing another rock on the gigantic pile of terrible things white America has done to black America. That said, um, I think so frequently, when you are relying on one of the big powerful words to do something, you're not being smart about the way that you are writing. And I think that that's your point. If, if it had been a funnier piece, um, like, I would be more enthusiastic about it. Like, I, I'm a man. I would never tell Samantha Bita that she doesn't get to say that. But I think that there was probably a way of structuring that bit that wouldn't have had this blowback. And every time anyone writes anything, you are constantly looking through it to be like, oh, God, what are... What are people going to get pissed off about? What did I not realize is terrible in this? And it's, it's hard when you're doing a show every, every week. It's worse when you're doing one every day. <laughs> so, so, so pivoting on this, because you said something about, like, you're a man, you can't tell Samantha what you say about using this word. The, in the same context, Michelle Wolf also had a lot of heat because of her uh, uh, White House correspondent. I want to ask something. If Michelle Wolf, in her routine, and Samantha B in what she said, if these two were men, not women, where the reaction would be different? Oh, Could a yeah, man for sure. do the same oh, yeah. exact no, I mean, these are, these are two performers who are very um, well attuned to their role as women in the culture. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they push buttons that they know they can push with understanding that they know they have that most men don't have. And, that, uh, and, and we're, we're lucky to have them both. And they know what they're doing. Men probably can't do it, probably shouldn't try. Um, the the Michelle Wolf bit was uh, if you know if if I'm a little on the fence about Sam's bit I'm not there's there's no fence with the Michelle Wolf bit with me that was just straight on hard jokes at a at a lying government official who was sitting right there well and also like with Trump not there and Trump not being someone you can scoff at the fact that she managed to go after the people who enable him and really take them down was beautiful and they were such narrowly targeted jokes that yes. weren't saying that uh, talking about anyone's body yep. that weren't sort of like dragging anyone for trite things and really going at them for the substance of what they're doing. That was really weird to me and that was disturbing, the blowback that she got for that. I was really, I'm not often really disturbed. I was, the, the way that the, that the Washington press circled the wagons around Sarah Huckabee Sanders and said that was over the line and she, like, they, they announced a, a statement that night. You, 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 know, you, you know what really bugged me about this whole White House correspondent dinner? It's not just like the jokes, it's like for the second year in a row the president of the United States just blatantly said, like, you have fun, I'm not going to come. 
and and that just like I want to tell you something from a, a guy from Egypt who we've been watching these cor correspondents forever. We we remember the Colbert takedown under uh, Bush. Uh, we remember that, and we watched us like. <gasps> We wish we have something remotely similar to that in our country. But, uh, you know, with all the horrible things America is doing to the world, that night people get to see a simulation of democracy where the president, the leader of the strongest country in the world, sit there and he's been torn apart by another comedian. But for the second year in a row, Trump said, I'm not going to do this. I'm above this. He forgot that he is a public servant, and he's just like dealing with this as like he's like still uh, hosting uh, The Apprentice. There, there are structures of public service that he has just sort of refused. Like I remember when I was watching uh, the de the debates, the primary debates, a journalist asked him about him uh, dealing with his businesses before he went into office, and he just kind of dismissed it. And then later, people were saying, "Well, aren't there laws about that?" And the law about that is. If somebody is going to use the presidency to enrich themselves, we should not vote for them. If the president is not going to go to the White House Correspondence Center and hear himself be criticized, we should not vote for that. And if we don't do that part of democracy, like we can't expect that all of our rule of law and institutions are going to be able to do better if we can't get more than 35% of the population to show up. Because most of it isn't written down. It's norms. Yeah. It's just rules of behavior that people have followed because they figured they had to. So, um, Kendrick, you have been in the business for a while now. And today we're just not talking about like uh, politics, but like being an outsider in general. Since Trump became the president, have you felt a, a difference or did you feel a change of, of things in, in your immediate uh, environment as an actor, as an actor of color, who's got amazing, uh, beautiful green eyes? Uh, <laughs> so we, we kind of like kindred spirit table. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, so um, uh, what did this mean to you? Um, okay, well, I felt like an outsider my entire life because I'm also biracial and you know don't belong to a certain culture and things of that nature but also i was critical of president obama with standing rock how and, dare you you know and <laughs> i campaigned for bernie sanders okay. um on the road with him so um wasn't really new to be an outsider with president trump but it was it was great that people on one hand now felt more like outsiders too and realized that you know, you know, now it's not unpopular to say white privilege. That's not a myth anymore. You know those types of things. He exposed a lot of things. Um, My dog is named White Privilege. <laughs> I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Thank you for being an ally. I'm assuming it's a purebred. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so so I definitely. I mean, I felt a change in how bold racists were being. Um, even in the industry, I mean, you can talk to people on set and you think that you're in the most liberal space in America. And now you will see on a daily basis for me, uh, people in L.A., you know, exposing their true colors and people in my family who I thought were somewhat progressive. I'm running around with Black Lives Matter on my wrist and talking about immigration reform and things of, of that nature, being critical in the Obama era. And, and now I'm like, they obviously my family is on board, right? Because they haven't ever said anything. But then they were emboldened by Trump and became very critical and very um, vocal about it. People that you know personally. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It, it, friends. It, friends. Mm. Wow. 
Yeah. I'm as an outsider. I'm coming here. I'm trying to kind of hide as uh, behind so many uh, diversity cards as possible. So uh, I'm a Muslim. So if uh, if you're against me, you're Islamophobe. Uh, uh, I'm also a Semite. So you're against me. You are uh, in an anti-Semite because <laughs> Arabs are Semites, and I'm African because Egypt's in Africa. So sure. if you're against me, you're uh, you're a white supremacist. So it's it's I kind of like I'm I'm enjoying the three layers of protection there. How and could any white supremacist hate those blue eyes? Oh. Did you ever just sit like General Al Sisi down and like stare at him? Because I feel like that could have really won him over. <laughs> Their reaction won't be very favorable. In <laughs> Maybe I should have tried this. <laughs> we eventually got around to talking about Trump's own use of speech and how it's changed American politics. But that's the most fascinating thing about Trump is that he has broken political discourse in America. For so, I mean, since Reagan, politicians were always on script. They were always saying the thing that was officially true, not actually true. And it has been so charismatic to so many Americans that this dude is just saying the horrible things that they are saying at their bar or barbershop. Um, that nobody, like, th there are enough people who don't want better than that, who are just like, at least he's being quote-unquote real. Um, and I think it's been very hard for political commentary that was set up to mock people who had pretenses to dignity yes. to be able to deal with somebody who has no such pretense. Absolutely. Guy makes a great point. President Trump is breaking the system of political conversation here in America. He's not talking like a president talks, and he's not letting the press do its job as usual. And everyone sees it. Just last week, the local newspaper in Helsinki took out 300 billboards targeted at President Trump and Vladimir Putin, two people who take a lot of shots at journalists. The billboards called out the two leaders for shutting down newspapers, favoring certain reporters, and criticizing the press. But they also celebrated the Finnish media's room to operate. My favorite billboard, Mr. President, welcome to the land of free press. Nicely done, Helsinki. Nicely done. We are going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors, and then we will get back to the live podcast where we will talk about hate speech and censorship, but in a funny way. So don't leave us. Hiring is challenging. If I had ZipRecruiter, maybe I could have found even funnier guests for my live recorded podcast episode. Just kidding. Jason, Kendrick, and Guy, you guys are hilarious. But if you have normal hiring needs, there is one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-E-M-A-D-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Remade in America is also brought to you by Casper. Listening to this live podcast, which we recorded in Los Angeles, I remember how happy I was to get home that night and get into my bed on my Casper mattress. Ah, I can't wait to get home. 
Support for Remade in America comes from Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. At Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans. They are engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. I'm talking about my bedunkadunk. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of both sink and bounce. Casper offers free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. And if you aren't completely satisfied, Casper makes it easy to return your mattress at no charge and no hassle. In fact, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100 nights risk-free sleep on a trial. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash remade and using promo code remade at checkout. That's casper.com slash remade and promo code remade for $50 towards select mattresses. Term and conditions apply. Okay, back to Remade in America presented by CAFE. Jason Kendrick, Guy, and I had a good conversation about free speech and comedy. A few episodes ago, I talked to psychologist and self-help guru Jordan Peterson. He pointed out that there are already laws to protect people from certain kinds of speech, but argued that everything else should be allowed. I'm on the fence on this, trying to figure out what I believe. When speech encourages a narrative that puts down certain groups and makes it easier to mistreat those people, should we put a stop to that? I asked our guests where they draw the line. I'm gay, and for a really long time in stand-up comedy, using slurs about gay people, sort of making jokes about the worst cliches, the worst stereotypes of, of gay people, was considered to be the height of comedy. Just watch any Comedy Central from the 1990s, I mean, I'm sure The Daily Show did some work I wouldn't be that enthusiastic about. Sure. But the thing is, is I understand why people want to say, hey, stop that. You're just reinforcing what's worse. I want to say, as a voice, stop doing that. You're, you know, you're, you're convincing 13-year-olds that they don't matter. Gay people have a disproportionate rate of suicide for a reason, everybody. Like, but I, I don't think that these things need to be coded in the law because... In the United States, the idea is supposed to be speech combats speech. And Roseanne said something horrible. And then the rest of America got to say, Roseanne said something horrible. She shouldn't have a show. And even though this is Los Angeles, you do not have a constitutional right to your own show. <laughs> Netflix is coming close to that. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I, don't, I, I chafe when people talk about censorship when what's going on is, and it's hard because like your show, the first time it looks like it was taken off the air just as a board of directors saying this is no longer a, vi a viable enterprise. I understand that being able to draw a line between that and what happened to Roseanne is hard, but I also understand that my right to criticize shitheaded hack jokes is key to uh, me existing. Um, the that might be the Jordan Peterson. I, the, that might be the one thing I agree with him about is that I, I think that we should err on the side of free speech and not codifying it in the law. It's something that I, I do think about a lot. I know that as somebody who checks literally every privilege box there is, that I'm I'm not in danger from speech almost ever, unless you're going against tall guys with Finnish ancestry. Um, so I, I keep that in mind. I do. Go back to Helsinki. It's beautiful this time of year. Uh, if you're flying me, I'll uh, happily. Um, but, you know, I, 
I, we wouldn't, you know, we, we know a lot about Jordan Peterson now because of freedom of speech, you know, yeah. he, he went on, he, he, the, he, he went on the New York Times interview and said a lot of things that we now get to, you know, judge him on. And I, you know, I think also, uh, I look at, uh, you know, the Daily Show, I'm sure did do some jokes, you know, in times that I was probably there that, you know, I wouldn't be terribly proud of looking back. Um, your, your gay sports correspondent was Jason Jones in a purple suit. Um, <laughs> though, I don't think that was gay, was it? That was like a joke No, about... it was completely, it was. look, I remember these okay. things, okay? Reparations! As someone who submitted <laughs> to the show repeatedly and auditioned to be a correspondent, yeah. uh, during a period of time when you never had a queer correspondent, but we're talking about gay stuff a lot, I was very aware of that segment. Right. I'm sorry. All right. Um, but I... Look, just looking, just looking at the evolution of since then, the evolution of the the consciousness in comedy and in show business that has changed without any laws on the books, but the ways we, we're speaking differently all the time with with a different level of consciousness as the dialogue keeps going. And but, but but you have a change of consciousness. Other people are coming up now and saying things that might be a little bit horrible for most of Absolutely. us. Absolutely. But I, is, is, is the solution to disinvite them, to stop them from speaking? Because I, you're just like, you're suppressing I don't that mind. and it's going to go somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think that like if the college Republicans invite Milo or somebody like that to campus, I think that's, um, I, I think that's a real shame. I would be angry if it was my school. I don't think I would advocate physically stopping somebody from speaking. I think the talk that needs to happen there might not even be with Milo. It might be with the goddamn college Republicans who live next door to you who just invited him. Like, let's talk with them, because that, that is a bizarre act of aggression by your neighbors. So let's talk to your neighbors. What do, you talk, what do you talk to them about? Why that is... Because uh, my conversation would be to ask them not to invite him. That, that could be it. But so but nobody. I, but again, I, nobody has a freedom to always speak at college campuses when they want. So, like, I, I, that's I would, pre- prevailing on them not to invite him is. I don't think that's a free speech or violation. disinviting them or allowing the protests outside. I I would disagree. Um, as far as hate speech is concerned, when you allow someone, I I would put my body physically in front of someone before I let them speak hate on a platform that I had a part in. Uh-huh. So. Because I know the effect that that has on people of color and especially, you know, someone like Milo or even Trump saying, you know, joking about police brutality and, you know, saying maybe you should rough them up a little bit or whatever, uh, a little bit more, bump their head on the whatever he said. That has a direct correlation to oppression and violence. Um, but, by, if you, but if you stop them, they will find a way. They will find a way in the internet, and they will gather people. And now they're going to be like on the side. They're going to be the oppressed people. They're going to victimize themselves, and they're going to gather more supporters. Well, also, that's that's the problem. It, it, it's just like uh, where, and that's what comes back to my original question: Where do you draw the line? Uh, for us, it is hate speech. But is the solution to disinvite them? I would say that when you can draw a line to specifically speech becoming violence, which I think that is a clear line with um, encouraging police brutality. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're talking about anti-Semitism, when you're talking about white supremacy, those types of things are hateful speech that, that correlate directly with violence and oppression. I believe that you should 
disinvite those people and not not give them a platform. They can go on and do whatever they want to do on the internet, but if you have a platform and you allow that, then I believe you are taking part in that oppression and perpetuating that oppression. But didn't we try this like for a while and still that kind of speech just came up? I mean, we we were all about political correctness and this kind of speech should not be allowed to be said, and yet it found a way out and surfaced all the way up to the presidency. So the thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. For, so for example, there's stuff like that's not really violent, but for example, they would say uh, white people are superiorly more intelligent uh, genetically than uh, people of color. And, and, and sometimes they'll even use uh, stupid examples that are wrong, by the way, when they said the pharaohs were white. No, they were brown. And... Uh, uh, but the th if uh, there's a lot of there's so many degrees of speech, it's not really violent, but still can indirectly or directly can lead to violence. You can't stop people from speaking. Either w and who's going to draw the line? Who's, go who, who's, who's, who's going to draw the line? Is it's such uh, a key question because I mean the thing is like even the Supreme Court says you can't yell fire in a crowded building. If something is like assault, if something is directly bringing on violence like that's no longer speech. But what worries me is that the people who will be defining the lines of what is or isn't hate speech will continue to be the Republican majority in the House and the Senate. Like somebody has to decide what these rules are. And if we don't elect people who have a vision more in line with like America being at peace and respecting the people that is traditionally not respected, it's just going to be perpetuated. Uh, uh, our, our Attorney General Jeff Sessions, while he was Attorney General of Alabama, sued gay students at the University of Alabama who tried to have a club because he said what they were doing was encouraging people to commit a crime, which is true. At that point in time in Alabama, having gay sex was a crime. Um, and so, like, those... Uh, it is imp important for me to defend the First Amendment because I know as a gay man it is much easier for me to be in that position than it is to be in the position of the person who's saying, oh, that's hate speech. Like, it, as soon as you say that somebody, you can define some speech as non-speech, you really have to be worried about who's getting to make that definition. I would never advocate to, for more policing. So I, I will say that I think the, the end of it would be um, I don't think that people should, um, it should go move into law uh, f to more oppression of speech and things of that nature. But um, what I do think that giving somebody a platform, well, let me just say this. I don't think our society has ever been too sensitive to oppressed people. I don't think that that's ever going to happen. Um, so I don't think that this whole political correct, this fear of political correctness, I don't think we're going to get to a point where we're too sensitive to oppressed people. And I definitely don't think that that is what led to the Trump presidency. Um, I think that that was a black person. One, the biggest thing was that a black person held office for eight years and there was a huge white lash. And that was a rise to they felt that they couldn't say things now be just because they were wrong. Yeah. Uh, all these people that are now liberated and, and being racist and oppressive and white supremacists, the oppression that they felt before was not political correctness, it was morality. Yeah. And now they see somebody being extremely immoral on a national stage in the most powerful seat in the world, and they feel that it is okay to be immoral and to further oppress people and be open about it.
that's where I think that it should be cut off. It, it, if you have a platform, then, or you have access to cutting off that platform, then you should do it if you believe that it will perpetuate more oppression. No matter how much we try to talk about other topics, a conversation about free speech between four comedians always seems to come back to President Trump. Before we ended the live podcast, I gave everyone else a chance to say one last thing. So, um, final thoughts, Guy? Um, I think we should all scoff less. I think we should all be less excited about sick takedowns on Facebook. And we should all try to step back and think about what other people are going through before we decide to tell them why they're stupid. <laughs> um, your show in Egypt was a celebration of humanity, and it was full of joy. And I think that as an American satirist, that's something that I try to learn from and try to remember, because when the regime took your show down, they showed what they were willing to destroy to stay in power, and that hits harder than any mean joke. I would just say um, that I'm working on an initiative called Reform LA Jails. You can go to reformlajails.com and find out more about it and find out where you could sign the petition so that we can push uh, $3.5 billion away from private prisons that they're proposing to build new prisons into alternatives for incarceration for mentally ill and homeless and hold the sheriff's department accountable. Isn't it crazy, guys? The prison industry, I, do they have stocks? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn. All right. So uh, I would love to thank my amazing guests for, for tonight. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for the support. Thank you, all of you guys, for coming here. Thanks for Technicolor Experience Center. I did the VR experience out there. It's amazing. So cool. So thank you, everybody. This is Bassy Music, Free Made in America, presented by Cafe. We did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a really fun conversation, and I learned a lot from our three guests, too. First, I am never going to tell someone to go back to Helsinki, because handsome, tall Nordic men have feelings, too. Unless, of course, they are going to Helsinki to bring me back one of those billboards. Second, I better buy stocks in American prisons. They are just killing it these days. And third, next time I want to persuade a powerful leader to see my way, I'm going to sit him down and then make him stare longingly into my blue eyes. If it works, Guy is a genius. And if it doesn't, blame Guy for getting me into a lot of trouble. But being serious, this conversation really helped me refine my ideas about what is and isn't okay to say and okay to joke about. In particular, listening to Guy talk about how his experience hearing gay jokes and how normalized they were, that really hit a chord. Because 15 years ago, I too might have thought there was nothing wrong with normalizing these kinds of jokes. It's time to hear a voicemail from one of our listeners. As always, I haven't heard this before right now. All I know is that we have an outsider story from Sarah. Hey, Bassem, this is Sarah Taxler. I made a documentary about you once. I hope you remember me. One time when I felt like an outsider was when I was in Egypt, and it had been a long day of shooting at your office. I went back to the hotel, and I was eating dinner in the restaurant. And as I was eating, I saw this guy who just kept staring at me. And I was uncomfortable, so I finished up and walked out of the restaurant. And I turned around, and he was walking right behind me and just stared at me. And I just started to think about 
different things I had heard about documentarians in Egypt and people who'd been arrested. And I was staying at the hotel where the Al Jazeera journalists had been arrested. And my phone starts ringing and it was you. And you you said, hey, I'm just calling to say hi, say how you're doing. And I was like, actually, I'm kind of nervous. There's this guy and he keeps staring at me. And you start laughing and say, he wants you, baby. And I was like, uh, no, I don't think so. This guy is just staring me down. And you told me, no, he's flirting with you. This is how some people here do it. He's just staring at you. And I kind of dismissed it and thought, okay, Boston doesn't get it. He's a guy. And the next day I went into your office and was talking to a few women who worked there and told them what happened. And they all said, yeah, actually, he was flirting with you. <laughs> That's Some people here uh, would flirt in that way. And I realized I was a woman by myself and did not know some of the local social norms for flirting. Okay, take care. Bye. Yeah, that's that's a nice surprise. Uh, oh, Sarah, the memories. Oh, my God. I have to say now, listening to this story right now, I feel terrible because I didn't actually, like, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible that when you are living in a place where this is the norm, that you kind of dismiss it. Ah! just like uh, is flirting with you although it must have been felt like you must have felt terrible about this I'm so sorry being a woman in the Middle East and maybe in, in some parts of the Middle East especially Egypt it's, it's, it's very difficult being a woman alone and as you've heard these women say like yeah that's the norm to have this as the norm is terrible I'm sorry Sarah for what you had to go through If you have an outsider story or a question for me, or want to suggest a topic that we cover on this show, tweet at me or call me at 785-4BASIN. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every good review makes it easier for new listeners to find this show. Remade in America is presented by CAFE and produced by Neon Hum Media. Our show producer is Vikram Patel, editorial support from Ashley Cleek, Production support from Palavi Kotamasu. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our theme song is by Beethoven Music. And special thanks to Jeff Eisenman and Brian Carmel. Next time on Remade in America. The politics of documentary were not democratic enough. I didn't want to feel that you had to read the front page of the New York Times to watch anything I worked on. That's next time on Remade in America. I'm Bassim Youssef. Talk to you soon. <laughs>